work lives are in serious flux right now. The unemployment rate is about 10%. And for people who still have jobs, up to half of them are working from home. And the work from home burden is extra heavy for women, and especially women of color. Maybe this moment is an opportunity for companies to take a closer look at the ways they've always made things harder on women workers. Now is the time for women. It is the time for companies to really focus and put their efforts into women. Now is the time for change. It's time for making things very visible instead of behind closed doors. And there's no better time than right now when we are in the middle of change as a country. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, work in times of change. My first guest is Stephen Reich. He's an historian at James Madison University, and he studies what work looked like for African-Americans after emancipation and through the first half of the 20th century. Steve, you have been researching novels by Black authors who wrote during the Jim Crow era. Were most of the novelists writing about the experience of being African-American, trying to make it in a big city, and primarily a big northern city? Well, um, the, the ones I looked at particularly chronicle the Great Migration. And this is... African-Americans from the South from the time around World War I, um, many African-Americans, about um, 500,000 during World War I, moved out of the rural and urban South to the urban North to take jobs in defense industries um, and settled in places like Pittsburgh and Chicago and Harlem and uh, Detroit. Um, and um, many of these novelists also followed the migration pattern as well. So people like Richard Wright grew up in Mississippi and ended up in Chicago and worked for the Works Progress Administration under the New Deal. They really kind of believed that the novel was trying to capture the reality of life and to protest against the realities of life that they were able to bring forth uh, in their novels. Why did the great migration to better jobs, better lives outside the South not really start happening in force until the 20s? Mostly because jobs disappeared in the South? There were no jobs? Well, there are plenty of jobs in the South. Um, a couple of things happened with World War I, I would say three major things. One, World War I cuts off immigration from Europe. And immigration from Europe had fueled the northern industries, the labor there. Right? So those industries need a new source of labor. Yeah. Okay. Those industries are also ramping up production because of the production for World War I. And you have a new generation of African Americans in the South that are the children of the freedom generation who aren't as interested in farming as their parents were and are a little more interested in branching out and going to other places. And the North is one of those places that beckons. And so um, this becomes the sort of the image of the promised land to go to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, New York, um, and um, newspapers um, extolled the virtues and the promises of, 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 of the abundance of the, of the cities. And then early migrants who went up to Chicago would come back and visit relatives back in the South. And rather than wearing overalls and brogan shoes, which is a sort of a work shoe, they would come back in fancy suits and style with wearing watches and they were immediately sort of visible signs of the prosperity that was possible outside of the rural South. And so this becomes another aspect of the draw to go North. So I would say drop in your European uh, immigration, the increase in production, so the, the demand for labor needs because of the war, and a new generation of African-Americans willing to, to fill that labor need. What should we understand broadly in America during the Jim Crow era, the job situation was in terms of equitable opportunity for African-Americans? 
uh, the job opportunities were very poor. Economic inequality was a hallmark of Jim Crow. And when we say Jim Crow, what we're talking about there is a, a system of racial segregation that um, either confined African-Americans to particular kinds of public spaces or excluded African-Americans from particular kinds of spaces. Jim Crow also greatly restricted African-Americans' ability to access the ballot and to vote. And at the same time, we have economic discrimination at the workplace in which African-Americans, if they worked in, if they worked for wages outside of agriculture, they generally worked in in the South in what we call the extractive industries. They tended to work the heaviest jobs, the dirtiest jobs, the most dangerous jobs, the loudest jobs, and the jobs with the least security and that were the lowest paid. And those, um, the, the men that worked in those heavy industries seldom have ever got an opportunity to uh, be promoted, to, um, to go up into a skilled position or to move into a supervisory position. For black women, black women often worked cooking in white women's kitchens, cleaning white women's houses, and raising white women's children. And that the labor of a domestic servant was so cheap that even white workers could often afford the services of black domestic servants. So the economic situation was really, in many ways, dire for African-Americans in the South. And what about after people migrated north? Was it infinitely better? Better? Better. Um, Let's put it this way. Um, African-Americans got access to better paying jobs in the industrial north. They got into industries that they, from which they had been excluded before. And these are sort of the major industries, things like automobile, meatpacking, steel industry, automobile manufacturing. And these were um, uh, industries that would soon become unionized. Um, And so African-Americans there got better jobs, better paying jobs, jobs that were perhaps more steady, but the access to those jobs only brought so much because they still encountered discrimination. They still encountered um, blocked from being promoted. Oftentimes, you will see in some of these industries, you know, it's not just African-Americans who migrated to the North. It's also white Southerners who migrated to the North. Um, And oftentimes, white Southerners would get jobs as supervisors in automobile or steel plants. And one of the ways they would get the get a supervisory job is to say that they had come from the South and that they knew how to handle black labor. Um, and so that oh they, gosh. yes, yes. And so this would, this would make them, this would give them the right character to know how to keep African-Americans in their place uh, in these workplaces. And it was only then later through unionization efforts that African-Americans were able to sort of crack through some of that awful discrimination. But you would see segregated um, uh, lunch counters, um, uh, dressing rooms, swimming pools, um, all kinds of stuff like that in in, in in these urban northern environments as well. Um, so, yeah, it's better, but it's um, it takes quite a while before it becomes that much better. It really takes until the civil rights movement, until we and with um, active um, anti discrimination, federal anti discrimination statutes that are enforced, do we see a real meaningful opening of the American workplace? Knowing what you know so well about the job situation for African-Americans in the South, in the post-emancipation era, and then in the North after the Great Migration. What do you see as lasting legacies in the job market for African-Americans today? Mm -hmm. I would say there's a few of them. Um, The first is that um, the Jim Crow era 
and our era today, I think both share, and I don't want to overstate the similarity, but I think African-Americans would say that any society that is insufficiently dedicated to promoting economic justice will continue to have a society that sees racial inequality. And we see today disparities and inequalities in wealth distribution and income. And those continue on today, even after the civil rights movement. Um, you know, African-Americans still only earn, and I'm not going to get the statistic right, but it's about 75 cents to the dollar of whites, that the unemployment rate among African-Americans remains always about twice as great as it is among white Americans. Um, and that is something that has remained very, very sticky um, in that regard. Um I would say a second legacy uh, is that African-American workers understand that what they need is what all American workers need. Good wages, fair working conditions, a secure retirement, affordable housing, good medical care, quality education. Um, and that these were part of what um, the civil rights movement demanded um, as part of the March on Washington. There's this famous line by A. Philip Randolph in the March on Washington, same, the same 1963 March on Washington where Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. But Randolph said there that you show me the politician who is opposed to Social Security, who is opposed to the minimum wage, who is opposed to Medicare, who is opposed to federal aid to education, and you show me the politician who is also the enemy of African Americans. And so there's this understanding there about the way in which government resources is intimately tied up into um, the economic conditions and the working conditions of African-Americans, which I think then leads to the third legacy, and I would say political activism, that um, the, the American workplace became more diversified and more open because of the efforts of black activists to dedicated the moral courage um, to demand that opening. Um, and that... Um, it only happened because African-Americans insisted on that demand and made that demand and worked tirelessly to bring it about. And um, it's only going to be through continued efforts that we are going to see progress. And I think that's what we are in many ways witnessing today. What do you think most needs to be undone about those racist legacies in the job market now to create more equitable working situations and opportunities? Um, I would say one of the things that Jim Crow did was it racially divided the working class and racially divided workers. And it, it pitted one race of worker against another race of worker. And it tended to, particularly among white workers, it compelled white workers to see their economic survival, their economic health rested on the exclusion of blacks. And politicians and people in power and property elites and employers were always very savvy in stoking those kinds of racial flames in order to keep the working class divided. And I think that the more today that we can overcome this idea that um, anti-discrimination um, harms white workers and elevates black workers um, rather than helps all workers um, is a really is something really important to try to work on. There's so much evidence in the past of, uh, of, of white workers always constantly being afraid of, um, of, of, uh, of anti-discrimination as promoting somebody who isn't qualified, right? And you see the way in which this comes through in political ads and the way in which politicians 
will um, will play on that sensibility. Um, and yet, as A. Philip Randolph reminded us at the March on Washington, it is it is when we invest resources for all workers and we create working conditions for everybody that are dignified, that all workers benefit. Um, and trying to overcome that kind of that sense of, of of racial distrust and racial animosity. Steve Reich, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, well, thank you, Sarah. It was wonderful to talk to you, and I really appreciate the invitation. Stephen Reich is a professor of history at James Madison University. He's the author of A Working People, The History of African-American Workers Since Emancipation. Coming up next, work-life balance for women during the pandemic. Women, particularly Black women, are still fighting for equity at work. And COVID-19 has put extra pressure on women struggling to balance work and life demands. But Narketa Sparkman-Key says the pandemic also presents an opportunity for workplaces to implement better support for women workers. Narketa Sparkman-Key is a professor of human services and director of faculty diversity and retention at Old Dominion University. So what have you noticed about the kinds of burdens you're experiencing as a woman working from home, balancing childcare. Right. So for me, um, the burdens that I have is I'm worried about everyone and I'm worried about disinfecting constantly. So I want the house to always be clean. I want to make sure that we are spraying Lysol. We're wiping down the doorknobs, you know, with bleach wipes constantly. I have to make sure the emotional and social well-being of my children are okay because I do have a teenage son who's, who's home from college. Right in the middle of his semester, he had to come home. And so I had to make sure that the whole family is taken care of as well as you have the crises at work, right? For me, it's, it's really hard hard to get to the writing and the research because I need quiet. I need to be able to focus um, and I can't do those things. I don't have that time to just sit and focus. And if I do sit and focus on writing, it's not great. The product is not great. It takes me much longer to get something done and to get something out. The work that's needed for online meetings has picked up. I'm working in the educational system. I have to be on these calls and making sure that other faculty, because my focus is faculty, are balancing, that we have enough supports in place, that I'm listening to their voices and I'm providing what I'm supposed to provide through my role to them. So it is constantly on the computer, but also forever present in the home. It's just a huge juggle there. You can't bracket the time. And what are you hearing from friends? What has their experience been, especially mothers? Oh, a lot of things. You know, I have a a good friend who has three children under the age of four. And she talks about, you know, trying to juggle a leadership role and have these little people that she has to entertain. And she said the cool part is that her little people are excited about being home. They think it's fun. They think they're on vacation. But the hard part for her is wanting to spend that time with them and then finding the opportunities to meet the requirements of her role, which is that 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 writing, that constant writing so that you can be published, as well as um, making sure her students are okay. Because many people have have taught over the summer. There wasn't a summer break. What about their employers? Have employers generally, have you heard, been supportive of women and women and men trying to work at home with children present? No, I have been watching um, or reading and, and just, you know, staying up to date on different blogs that have been written by by women. And, and women talk about having to wait until their children go to sleep in order to work so that they can meet the requirements of the job, which means that they're not sleeping. They're up in the middle of the night. They're trying to do the work and they're not getting rest. I have heard of um, one institution in Florida that said, if you have children at home, you cannot be on a clock. <laughs> which means they can never work because their children are home because daycare centers were closed. Um, and so there are some employers that are trying to um, 
be more lenient, trying to listen to the needs of their employees, but they still have the requirement of getting the work done. So they still have the pressures of saying, you, you have to get this done. And it falls on the employee who really wants to keep their job. And in order to keep their job, they have to find time to do the work. And there are stories of some individuals who don't, they're not working anymore. They had to let the jobs go because they were homeschooling children and they had young children at home and they could not meet the demands of the work. It's interesting. I was surprised to read that in higher education, there's a report academic journals are now getting more articles submitted from men than women, and that didn't used to be the case? No, um, women were publishing as well. Uh, right now, because of all the different barriers um, that are preventing women from writing, it is harder for them to get products together that are great enough to be submitted to um, a journal. And so immediately, one of the very first things that people started to notice, that journal editors noticed, was the lack of articles from women. And it's not that some women do have men in the home, but the emotional and, and, and social well-being of the whole family falls on the woman. Women typically give more of themselves than the men do because they can focus on their careers a little bit more. Um, and, and so because of that, women are not as productive. And do you think that's the case for women who aren't in higher education also? Yes, I do think. I think that, you know, higher education was one way for us to actually see that productivity. Yeah. But um, I do think it impacts every industry, that the productivity is not as swift. If you were a person who would, you know, generate a report very quickly, you know, it's going to take you some time to generate that report because you have other obligations. I have even heard in one state from a friend of mine who said that their employers are requiring them to check in at a certain time of the day and they are actually telling them you should be able to complete this by this time. So they're trying to put stipulations on the time it would take to complete a task because they're home with family. And would you say it's worse for Black women than white women generally? I say things right now are worse for Black women. And the reason why I say that is because Black women are not only dealing with um, the impact of COVID, but they're also dealing with racial injustices. And they've always been dealing with racial injustices. But if you look at the front lines of who's fighting um, against these, these racial injustices, it is Black women. Black women are organizing the marches. Black women are a part of the organizations that are really fighting for change. And so they're taking on the emotional toll of what's going on within the world right now. They are also in institutions or companies, and their role is focused on diversity. Their role is focused on dealing with racial injustices and other things related to that. And so they have that as well as the impact of COVID-19. So taking care of their family, juggling being at home and being online. Um, and so they have a lot more that concerns them. And as well as, you know, their little boys are the reason why they're fighting. You know, their their spouse, their their brothers, their uncles. And so they have that added stress and worry about um, the, the men in their lives being targeted um, by, you know, police or just being targeted for because of the color of their skin. And so women, Black women, are taking a lot on during this time. What have you learned or noticed that is necessary to funnel more women into top positions in small and large organizations? I think that institutions have to focus on succession planning. They have to begin to create pipelines to these top-level positions for women. And what that means is that companies have to really make it an intentional effort to address it. And that means mentorship, mentoring women into these roles. That means cultivating skills needed to do those senior level positions. And that means in your planning of when people retire and when people leave your company, you make a specific point to put women into those leadership positions. You have to make a targeted effort. And I feel like right now is an opportunity for companies to do so because they can start to do many of these efforts remotely, you know, using some of these online platforms and, and environments. But I also think that women need um, an outlet that helps 
them to sort of thrive, a, a community of other women that helps them to process the issues that they're they're dealing with and cultivate skills. And so those environments bringing women together for that peer mentorship can be created by companies and they can do it virtually. Don't you think that the problem is not so much that women don't have leadership skills. They're just not in those private corridors of power when the good jobs get doled out. So many of the job promotions seem to be more casual than leadership succession might suggest. Yes. Um, I would never say that women do not have leadership skills. I believe that women do have leadership skills. And I also believe that company has have to get away from those practices that prevent women from even knowing how to develop those relationships in order to get in those positions. And many of the decisions about, you know, who would be the next person in a leadership role happens on, you know, golf courses and private rooms that women are not in. But companies have to make conscious decisions of not doing the things that they have been doing, but focusing their efforts on making it very visible what the process into leadership is and how women can rise into leadership within those organizations. So they have to do away with all those old practices and they have to make it very concrete for women. This is how you can rise into these leadership roles and this is the path and this is how we're going to cultivate you to get there. I think that it's important to really understand that now is the time for women. It is the time for companies to really focus and put their efforts into women. Now is the time for change. It's time for making things very visible instead of behind closed doors. And it's the time to really build pipelines for women. And there's no better time than right now when we are in the middle of change as a country. And companies can really make that dedicated decision that this is the route that they're going to go to address some of the disparities we're coming off yesterday was Black Women's Equal Pay Day. And it was yesterday because Black women, it takes that long for Black women to make the same amount of money as their white counterparts, right? And so we need to start focusing on paying women their worth, how we're paying Black women, how we are actually creating pipelines for women to rise. Well, Narketa, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Thank you. It was a pleasure being on the show. Narketa Sparkman Key is a professor of human services, an academic affairs director of faculty diversity and retention at Old Dominion University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In recent years, scholars have paid increasing attention to clothing as a window into history and politics. Elizabeth Ann Fretwell says in the West African nation of Benin, we should also pay attention to the tailors and craftspeople who made that clothing. Fretwell is an historian at Old Dominion University, and she studies how the history of tailors in Benin gives us insight about on-the-ground politics. Elizabeth, what was it about what you saw when you were stationed in Benin in the Peace Corps that made you really notice the tailors, the clothing, the whole way culture and status were transmitted through clothes and making clothes? My initial interest in tailored clothing in Benin came from wearing tailored clothing in Benin. I loved to wear um, models. It was at that that point, which were long fitted skirts uh, with a matching blouse, which was the style when I was there in the mid 2000s. And I also heard the ways that people could notice something about somebody else based on what they're wearing, of course that's everywhere, right? So you see someone and the way their clothes are fitted, you might say, ooh, they're a little bit villageois, right? They're from the village, they're from the country (laughs) because of the way that they're dressed. Um, And so I was really interested in 
thinking about how tailors inform what people wear. Um, that unlike in this country where, or unlike in the West, where if you want to have a new dress, you go to the store and you look at all the dresses, or I guess now you might go on the internet and look at ones you want to buy and you pick what, what pleases you and you go home and put it on. Much of the clothing that people are wearing in West Africa, the process for attaining clothing is very different. You go to your tailor, you go to your tailor and you ask your tailor, oh, I have this cloth. What do you think might look good in this cloth? You come with your own ideas of what you want. You might have a picture on your cell phone, you know, something on Facebook that you show them. Um, and you say, I want an outfit like this. And a tailor will say, okay, I can do that. Or I can't do that. Or what if we modify this aspect of it? Um, and a tailor might add something. Well, if we modify this aspect of it, it will be more in style because this is what they're wearing in the capital or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or I saw this somewhere else. And so a tailor has influence over the final product. And the, the, the outfit that comes out of this interaction is a product of not just the demands of the, the consumer or the demands of the person who's buying it, but it's also a product of what the tailor knows, uh, their craft knowledge. And so I'm interested primarily in this interaction and how this interaction has changed over time, right? Tell me a little bit about Benin. Where is it? What is it like? You were stationed there when you were in the Peace Corps. Yes. So Benin or Benin is a country in West Africa. It's about the size of Pennsylvania. It's known for a few things. First, it was a major participant in the Atlantic slave trade. And Benin is also where we find the Vudun religion. And so because of its disproportionate role within the Atlantic slave trade, Beninese culture goes beyond its very borders. And then the second reason, the more recent, is that in the, the 1990s, Benin became the front line of democratization in Africa. So Benin is one of Africa's strongest democracies and has been for the past 30 years or so. And so oftentimes... Uh, when you speak to people, they'll know Benin. Benin, oh, one of Africa's richest and oldest democracies. And you have studied the history of tailors in Benin. Why look at the tailors and what was going on with clothing and cloth during this early period? There was a really rich clothing culture or sartorial culture in the kingdom of Dahomey. Uh, because they were connected with all of these different trade networks, and there's also a really rich tradition of local weaving. So in the pre-colonial kingdom, most people are just wearing wrapped and draped textiles. But there are a few, a handful of tailors during this early period. The, the royal palace, um, which is a huge complex. The king has, at times, hundreds and thousands of wives. There's also an elite class of state administrators and slave traders. They're wearing these wrapped and draped cloths, you know, from India, from Europe, from elsewhere in Africa, locally made, alongside certain sewn pieces. So the king might wear a wrapper around his waist with a jacket and a hat. And there are a few tailors connected to the palace who repair and maintain these clothes. So was the king and the other elites, were they trying to look more European? No, no. It wasn't about looking European. It was about incorporating the best of or the most interesting and the most exciting aspects of European dress, of dress from other parts of Africa into their own Dahomean dress. Tastes are changing. Global tastes are changing. And there's a recognition that there's this, this standard of what, you know, an urban citizen looks like of what somebody who has that kind of lifestyle looks like. And it's it's global. And so Dahomeans, too, become interested in that and take part in that. When would you say this tailored or sewn clothing became much more common in that area? During the colonial period, 
is really when these styles start to take hold among the masses, you know, among everyday people in the interior. Did the French make them wear tailored clothing? So if uh, Dahomian was working in an office, of course they would have to wear tailored clothing or attending school or a mission convert, which of course isn't the state, right? There would be the expectation that they would have to wear tailored clothing. Um, servants within the the households of French colonial officials. Initially, in the early 20th century, these would be the the individuals who start to wear tailored clothing first. But then as taste shift, more people start adopting tailored clothing. In the part of Benin that I mostly focus on, so in the in the interior, the 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 former capital of the Kingdom of Dahomey, that area. It's not really until after the Second World War, in the 40s and 50s, that everyday people start wearing tailored outfits on a regular basis. And who's making those clothes? Are these imported or made at home? So the young men who want to become tailors during this period, there aren't enough master tailors to train them. The state at this point does not have apprenticeship programs or workshops where they're training young men how to be tailors. Instead, these young men start moving around West Africa, migrating. They go to the city. You might go to the capital and apprentice yourself to a tailor there. Or you might even go beyond the, the confines of colonial Dahomey to another colony and apprentice yourself to a tailor there. There's also information sharing among tailors. So you might have a workshop or a, a market stall where there's three or four young men working together, producing for clients, but at the same time, attaining their craft knowledge, right? Learning the skills of making clothing and designing clothing and cutting clothing. So one thing that these these young men do in order to learn the craft is to buy the secondhand clothing, to go to markets, purchase secondhand clothing, cut it at the seams and use it to approximate a pattern. And so part of this craft knowledge is not just the, the skill, right, in doing that, but it's learning taste, right? It's learning how to do that in a way that is pleasing, learning how to design as well. And so that involves taking inspiration from these secondhand clothing, taking inspiration from other styles, and then creating something new out of them. Right. That's fascinating. And so also during the colonial period, people aren't just adopting styles from Europe or what are what fashion scholars call world fashions, right? They're not just adopting suits and trousers, but they're also adopting styles from other parts of Africa. So in the colonial period, because there's this rich tradition of wrapping and draping cloth, there's also an idea that wrapped and draped cloth really isn't proper kind of clothing for the activities that are emerging during the colonial period and the post-colonial period, right? That Someone like a chauffeur, for example, can't wear a wrapped and draped cloth if he's driving cars and fixing cars because the cloth will get stuck in the door, it'll get stuck in the motor or something like that. For men, at least, there's the idea that you need tailored cloth in order to do the jobs of, you know, the modern world. And so Yoruba land in Nigeria provides a model uh, that... Dahomeans adopt and, and make into really their traditional dress as well. So are these tailors, these young men that are beginning to innovate and produce the fancy dress, do they have elevated status? No. Most of the tailors during this period that I'm talking about are um, the sons of peasants, right? So they're young men who have few opportunities. They haven't been able to go to school there's no opportunity for them to do that. But at the same time, most of them are just young men who aren't really interested in farming, you know, and so they'd like to take up a craft. So as I spoke with um, tailors, so many of them told me how they were initially attracted to the craft because of, it would permit them to dress well. So yeah. to be a tailor is the kind of job where you can go to work in a suit and you sit in a chair, and you work on a machine, um, and you're one of maybe a few people in your community who's using something like an industrial machine, 
You don't yeah. get dirty, you know, over the course of it. You're not a farmer toiling, you know, away in the fields or a mechanic who's gets all greasy and grimy during work. You know, a tailor can stay clean. Um, <laughs> and so this aspect of tailoring attracted young men to it men who wanted that sort of lifestyle and men who appreciated beauty, right? Because most of all, to be a tailor, you have to have good taste um, yeah. and you have to know how to design outfits and, and what looks good and what doesn't. So tailors who are interested in the craft, right? Young tailors, the first barrier to entry, the first thing that they had to acquire before they could become an independent tailor was a machine. And sewing machines were relatively expensive they were easy to acquire if you had the funds because sewing machines, I mean, if we were in a small African town in the 1950s, there isn't much industrial noise. You know, there aren't many cars, there aren't many radios, there isn't electricity. So the foot operated sewing machine and that sound that sewing machine makes really might draw the eyes of potential clients to the market stall. Okay, so the sewing machine becomes not just the the tool that a tailor needs to use in order to do his craft to make his his products, but it also becomes, you know, something to attract clients through its noise, through its industrial allure. Um, and then many times tailors in these small towns would be invited to go to a small village. And a village might you know, send a send a representative to the city or the small town to commission a tailor to come and sew trousseaus for a woman who's getting married, for example, to sew outfits for the entire village. And so a tailor could go to that village for a few days um, and stay there for a few days and produce for the whole village. And so tailors would take their machines and tie them on the back of a bike if they owned a bike or carry them on the top of their head and go into that village and stay there for a few days sewing outfits for the entire town. And tailors themselves would really project a sort of spiffy image. Oh, yeah. So to be a tailor, one must be well-dressed because, of course, your body <laughs> is your, your best means of attracting clients, of showing people how well you can do your job. Um, I had one tailor explain to me that if you put a, a beautiful outfit on a mannequin, it might look great and clients might become interested in it. But in order to know if an outfit is really well tailored, it has to be on a body and it has to be in movement. And so um, tailors would describe to me, you know, the right way that you have to get out of a car uh, in order to show that your outfit is well done, that your outfit is well tailored. The right way to go to a church, um, that walking becomes a way to promote your your goods and your skill. And so it's during this time of urbanization in mid-20th century Africa that people are starting to make cities, that tailors start frequenting the public spaces of the city or start walking through the market or the church or bars attracting the eyes of clients by how well the outfits fit their own bodies. And so during the, uh, the initiation from apprentice to master tailor, one of the major aspects of that ceremony the, is that the tailor has to wear at least a few outfits of, of their own creations. Why were these all men? What were women doing in the meantime? In America in the 50s, women were emulating domesticity, right? And sewing things for themselves and the children. Yes. So in the 1950s, in the mid-20th century, there is this parallel system of sewing, right? So you have on one hand, these male tailors who are innovating all these new ways of making and wearing clothing. And then on the other hand, you have women sewers. And so beginning in the early 20th century, First, it was Catholic missions, and then the colonial state itself adopts the program of training women as domesticated wives, right? Training them as homemakers. And so it's during this period that 
missions and then later the state are teaching young women and girls how to sew clothes, how to cook certain types of food, how to properly clean house. These skills in hygiene, baby rearing, you know, teaching women how to be the good wives or good wives for the this new class of African elite men, right? So if men are being trained, um, are going to school with the expectation that they will become civil servants, the idea being that they need to have wives who know how to be good homemakers, right? Wow. Yeah. Right. So sewing is, of course, a major part of this within you know, the American and the European imagination. Sewing is a skill of the housewife. And the women weren't encouraged to market their sewing no. products. No. So in these domestic education programs in the 1930s and later, the administrators of these schools explicitly try to design programs so that women aren't learning skills that they can then use on the market. They do this by restricting what kinds of outfits they can sew. So in domestic education programs, women learn how to make children's clothing. They learn how to make women's clothing. They do not, however, learn how to make suits and trousers, clothing for men. The idea being that they can repair this clothing for their husbands, but they don't actually know how to make it. And so women have historically a very different source of their craft knowledge than men. Um, men, it was through innovation. It was through these migrations and exchange in the mid-20th century. Um, women, it's from these domestic education programs. But what happens is that means that women uh, in this earlier period could only sew women's and children's clothing. And they didn't have the the know-how to make men's clothing. Um, while men could could usually sew all three. So this, in a sense, would limit women's ability to be competitive, to be profitable alongside men. It's so interesting to think about this history of craft in West Africa because of the way Westerners have embraced training Africans and especially the women in making things and then exporting their crafts to make money. What do you think of that in light of this history? So even today in Benin, there are programs by the state as well as nonprofits, many, many nonprofit programs um, that encourage women to take up these so-called traditional crafts um, that they can then export as a way of, they, you know, they're, they fall under the guise of these sustainable development projects that we're going to teach these women these skills. So purses, baskets, clothing, uh, oftentimes children clothing that then they can export. Um, in part, I see this as very similar in many ways to these, these programs that have come up throughout the, the 20th century. You know, in the 1930s, the French colonial state pursued a policy of improving African craft right, of making African craft better and therefore more exportable as a means of developing local economies, as a way to develop these places that had been left out as they saw them. Many of the development programs of the present have the same sort of approach that, you know, we can develop or we can help these communities by promoting these these sorts of skills. But for me, I mean, at least in Benin, people already have very well-developed systems for transmitting and passing skills such as sewing on from one person to another, right? Apprenticeship is very well-developed. Um, if anything, there are too many people tailoring, which, you know, has created sort of a glut of tailors, Um, in the present, at least in the past 20 or 30 years. And so what happens, I think, in both the colonial period and the post-colonial period is that the states and these development programs even that are not run by the state have this sort of paradoxical relationship to craft. They're encouraging traditional craft, what they call call traditional craft, um, in terms of both the methods of production, the kinds of tools that people use, the kinds of products that they make. 
But at the same time that they're encouraging African craftspeople to be more traditional, people who practice these so-called traditional crafts often struggle to access the resources of the state and the resources of um, particular nonprofits. So if they're looking for something like credit um, so that they can buy a new machine, oftentimes, for example, in Benin, people would like to buy an embroidery machine, which is very expensive. They can't actually access credit because they are part of the informal economy. So in many ways, that informalization or that that being outside of the the bounds of the you know of, of a formal economy is a product of the 20th century. It's not necessarily because they are a traditional craft, but they were almost made into a traditional craft over the course of the 20th century, which creates a problem for them in the present because they can't access the resources that a formally organized small business could. Well, Elizabeth Ann Fretwell, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. Elizabeth Ann Fretwell is a professor of history at Old Dominion University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aidan Carroll is our intern. Some of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>